Good evening and welcome back. In Prince Shotoku's commentary on this section of the Srimala Devi Sutra, he says, why is it that the Buddha did not teach this to Tagadagarbha uh, previously? To, for example, the Shravakas and the Prateka Buddhas. That teaching was not known. Um, why didn't the Buddha teach that to them if it's so liberating and it's, it's this definitive, ultimately true one vehicle teaching. Why or why did the Buddha not teach it before? And, uh, I think Prince Shotoku kind of answers his own question by saying, um, it's that the time was not right to bring forth this teaching. And he doesn't really explain why the time wasn't right. We might say that um, in the early Sangha, the Buddha felt like um, people first really have to um, you know, take a look at at their hindrances and um, and their kleshas, their obscurations, greed, hate, and delusion, and really kind of tame the mind a little bit. We don't want to give this teaching about this naturally pure mind right off the bat because people might just get lazy and arrogant. So um, the Buddha taught all about suffering and its causes for a long time. And then when he felt like the these disciples were more their minds were somewhat tamed. They, they were not in denial of their, uh, mental afflictions. They were working with them. They were, um, they were grounded. They were concentrated because he taught all these practices. Then maybe near the end of his life, he brought out these teachings of Buddha nature and Jantarga Garba. So we could ask that now, are, are we ready for this teaching? I'm not sure. I think each of us has to, has to uh, discern for ourselves. And um, maybe if, even if we feel like we're not ready for this teaching, still we might feel like, well, it's being presented now. Let's, let's listen and this will plant good seeds for when I'm, when I'm fully ready to absorb it. And um, it could be that uh, actually we might not feel ready, but maybe we are ready. Uh, because after all, all sentient beings have Buddha nature. It's taught. So, uh, and we've all been practicing for a while also. So, uh, ready or not, here it comes. Uh, we left off last week at the end of chapter eight, uh, 
where right at the end of that chapter, Sri Devi is saying, Bhagavan, Buddha, the Dharmakaya, the Dharma body of the Buddha, is not separate from, not free from, not different from the inconceivable Buddha qualities, more numerous than the Sands and the Gandhis. And the Dharma body of the Buddha is called to Tagadagarbha when it's not yet separated from the storehouse of afflictions, the obscurations. So this is important definitions here, especially this last one. This is just basic definition. If we forget this central theme here of Tathagatagarbha, what is that anyway? Well, it's the pure Dharmakaya. Later defined in this sutra as a naturally pure mind. Um, free from all obscurations, uh, mental afflictions, greed, hate, and delusion, free from dualistic thoughts and perceptions. Uh, and when it's not quite free yet, when it's still mixed together or covered by, apparently obscured by these, the stores, this storehouse of afflictions, then it's called Tathagatagarbha. Tathagatagarbha is a naturally and completely pure mind temporarily seeming to be obscured by thoughts and feelings and perceptions and so on. That's the, the basic thing. And, uh, the Buddha often taught by, um, metaphors and analogies. So I think one way to approach this to try to, try to, um, take in this model more and more completely and more and more experientially. So it doesn't just sound like a theoretical list of words. Uh, I know that some of you know this analogy already, but it applies so wonderfully to, um, to this discussion about obscurations and throughout this sutra. Uh, the analogy of the very thing we're looking at right now, a computer screen. We're all, it's like we're all looking at a computer screen. So um, in this analogy, this screen, let's say, is naturally pure mind. And meaning like it's ungraspable, it's inconceivable, it's radiantly bright. It is just knowing it is uh, experiencing itself, boundless and all-inclusive, timeless and unchanging. You might say, well, my computer screen isn't like that, but it's an analogy. So see if we can uh, see how our computer screen is kind of like that, especially the way that the screen itself is not changing right now, but the images on it are changing. So there's a, there's a screen that's just light. If there were no images on it, it would be light, maybe even like dark light. 
It's a, it's a kind of brightness with no content. This is an analogy for this, our own very naturally pure mind that's present right now. So this screen is, um, seems to be obscured, meaning like kind of hidden by what? By the images on it. By this diverse array of colors and shapes and individual people that we see um, on the screen. Right? So we're actually looking at this at this undifferentiated screen, but it has this layer of images on it, right? That's why I like this language, um, being careful with the language to say that the, um, these obscurations, here we're just, we're talking about like perceptions, this ordinary perceptions of faces. These perceptions seem to be obscuring the screen. So this, I like the, the language, they seem to obscure it because, um, or hide it, right? They seem to hide the screen. Because when we're looking at the images, we don't notice the screen. But do these images of our faces really hide the screen? If we look closer, it's not that they really hide it, right? This, we're still actually looking at the screen itself. But um, but the images are much more enchanting. <laughs> They're much more interesting. They're much more graspable than the screen. So we're kind of focused on these faces. Zoom is encourages us to <laughs> focus on the faces and the images. Computers encourage us to focus on the content on the screen. But meanwhile, we're looking at the screen. So do you see in this analogy that it's that it's quite ordinary to say that we're actually looking at a, just a undifferentiated, unchanging luminous screen but it seems to be hidden by these images on it these images that are actually produced by the screen later in the sutra we'll hear that the the clashes the obscurations um, arise from the basis of the screens Tathagata Garbha is the screen and it's the basis of all thoughts and perceptions. So just like this computer screen is the basis for the images on it. So it gives rise to the images on it. And then those very images that it gives rise to seem to hide it, don't they? Can you follow this analogy? Really, I think it's really, it's really um, wonderful to let this analogy really sink in and then see if we can, now it's more, it's a more experiential thing we're, we're relating to right now. See if we can then like kind of stretch the analogy to apply to our own experience right now. The computer screen is like this naturally pure mind that is just knowing. It's just cognizing. It is just light. It's just awareness itself. And 
it's giving rise to these, all these thoughts and perceptions and emotions and, uh, and so on. They're, they're not apart from it, just like these images are not apart from the screen, but they, um, they can be separated from the screen. For example, if we end the call and, uh, all the images disappear and we're just back to the screen. And meanwhile, while the images seem to hide or obscure the screen, they're not really. That's why we have this amazing possibility of um, being in touch with the screen, knowing the screen at the same time as we go about our life of images. And I think that's what we're being asked to open to in Zen. Can we, can we get in touch with this naturally pure mind that's present right now? All sentient beings are this Buddha nature. And, uh, without changing anything, can we just open to it more and more? One way of opening to it is by just asking ourselves, Right now, is awareness present? And being curious enough to answer the question by looking and checking. And where do we check? Instead of checking in the images that we're used to looking at, is awareness over there in the, in the faces and the thoughts and the perceptions? No, let's not look there. Let's look back back behind the images. But just like right now, looking at the screen, uh, yes, we're seeing the screen, but we're not seeing it as another one of the images. The screen is not like another one of the faces. In other words, it's not another one of the experiences that's happening. It's the experiencing itself. So... If we're looking to kind of get a hold of it, like the faces on the screen that we can kind of get a hold of as objects. It's not, we're not going to get a hold of it like that. And yet, it's undeniable that the screen is here. We're looking at the screen, or in the case of our own awareness, we are the screen of Tathagata Garbha. Pure Dharmakaya mixed with a bunch of images. So, even if we've heard this kind of thing many, many times, we have some sense as practitioners of uh, how we might actually open to it right now. Any any questions about this? One comment I would make is um, we have computer screens now, but they didn't have computer screens in Bodhidharma's day. So he called it wall gazing instead of screen gazing. <laughs> wall gazing, yes. And also they used in the in the old days in uh, India and China. 
a lot of Zen texts use the image of the mirror, which which is like maybe the closest equivalent to uh, to a screen. I think a screen's a little better analogy because um, it shows how the uh, how it's the basis for the the obscurations that seem to obscure it. It works very nicely for that. And there's nothing outside. There's nothing being projected from outside onto the screen, like a movie screen. The computer screen um, kind of like gives rise to the images on itself, amazingly. So, uh, yeah, it's a nice kind of 21st century analogy. But when we're looking at Bodhidharma's wall, uh, <laughs> the same. Any other any other questions like um kind of ex- experientially before we delve into the nitty gritty of the sutra? This is possible in, in zazen. It's and I would say it's a um it's a particular practice in zazen. It's a it might not just happen while we're just sitting there. Uh, for example, following the breath, because the breath is kind of like an image on the screen. So we're focused on that. The screen is right there. In other words, there's an awareness of the breath while we're following the breath. But we might be so focused on the image of the breath, we might not notice the awareness of the breath. So it's a little bit more subtle a practice to notice the awareness of the breath in addition to the breath. Uh, but uh, it's possible, especially if we're kind of used to following the breath. So we're, the mind is pretty settled and still pretty awake and present. Then we might ask, who is following the breath right now, for example? And that question can take us to to talk at a garba. What is it that's aware of the breath right now? Yes, uh, Rich. Um, what comes to mind is, um, well, I took the class with you over the summer, the turn, the, turning the light around um, yes. class, and you talked about this a lot, and uh, I really liked that. Um, it seemed like what a lot of the with a lot of what that came down to was this sort of a non-dual awareness that um, the breakdown of the subject-object separation is that correct? Like where you're like, if I'm if I'm breathing, I in zazen I could say I'm breathing through my nose, and keep doing that. I'm breathing in and out through my nose. It's like there's a subject who is perceiving the object of awareness, but at some point. It's just breathing. It's like the person, the subject is gone and the, and the object is just there. And it's like, there's no separation anymore. It's just the awareness, this awareness. Yeah. So by non-dual awareness, what we mean generally is um, an awareness that's not divided into subject and object. The division into subject and object is actually an obscuration, an illusory obscuration. And uh, just like to to apply that to this analogy of the screen we're looking at, it would be like um, the, the screen and the images on it 
are inseparable, which is true, eh, with the screen. It's not like, it's not like there's a thin layer of images that's like plastered on top of the screen. It's not like that, right? There's no, there's no distance between them at all. So, so in that way, you could say the awareness and which is the screen here and the, and the images, which is all these faces are inseparable. Uh, so, so then it can be possible to even be looking at the faces, but actually knowing that they are not really objects separate from the screen. They're just the screen expressing itself as images or in our case, thoughts and feelings and so on. And that would be the, you know, the non-dual awareness would be like when the content of awareness is non-dual, inseparable from the awareness itself. So oh, that's the first step to, um, to, because this is quite subtle, right? We're talking mm-hmm. about. The first step to, um, open to this non-duality. I think it's very helpful to get in touch with the undifferentiated screen first, just to know that there is an unchanging, undifferentiated Dharmakaya. And, but this doesn't mean to get in touch with that, we have to stop all thought. Um, if we, if all thought stops, we might, um, it might be easier. <laughs> There's nothing left but the screen. But it, even without stopping all thought, we're just, um, attending more to the, to the awareness itself. We're letting the thoughts and perceptions, they're still happening, but we're letting them kind of recede a little bit more to the background. And we're letting awareness itself kind of take its prominent place in the foreground of experiencing. It's okay. a little hard to talk about it, but this is... No, I get, I get what you're saying. I guess um, it sounds a little bit like the screen analogy is a little bit of a visual kind of yeah. consciousness idea. I mm-hmm. guess what I was getting at is if you're talking about an experiential process, I'm thinking about the breath. It's like there's really no me without breath. There's no I at all without breath. So there's who is looking at the breath. It's like the breath is, it's my life. If I didn't have it, I wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be any I to talk about it. So it's like on a physical level, it's like breath. Yeah, me, I'm breath. I'm breathing. It's, it's Or I am breath. You know, the breath is my life, mm. you know, and it's like without that, it would be death. And so it's like life and death. Yeah. It's sort of like hanging in the balance every time. It's like, and it feels like there's no separation there, you know? So that um, is true that breath is the basis of our life, but I would say that's kind of a, um, a conceptual overlay. I would say like we don't even, it's not that it's not true, but I think we don't, that would be more like reasoning our way into it. Um, whereas when we're really just with the breath, there's no thought of like, well, because it's sustaining my life, I am the breath. We don't, um, ideally we want to access this without any kind of, um, sort of reasonable conceptual um, explanation. We want to just, um, but I think that is, this is possible with the breath. We're just breathing um, and there's no more sense of the, the, the watcher of that. But uh, it may, and that may happen, or maybe a very subtle sense of, of duality of watcher and watched. 
But uh, I just think it's like, it can be a, like a shortcut method to actually like really um, kind of get, get some taste for the awareness that's always present. Mm-hmm. Not in a theoretical way, but, uh, uh, but really know that there's this element of our, of our experience that's not changing moment to moment and kind of be in touch with that. Um, which means like we're, we're like not attending that much to the, to the changing experience, which is what we usually are doing. We're attending to changing experience, but this is more like we're letting the changing experience, re- like the breath kind of recede a little bit to the background. Once we're, once we're stably on the breath and we're kind of curiously looking, we can even ask. And of course this, a question like this does come in a conceptual package. A question like, um, is there a knowing of this breath? And that's a question turns the light around, directs it back. And of course, we don't find the knowing as another experience, but um, we might uh, start getting a sense for it. And then, um, and then, we can notice how the breath is just a kind of expression of this knowing. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, David. I mean, I think my question was, was similar to Rich's and just the subtlety of um, distinguishing between your cognitive thinking and this just awareness and the Connections I have are, you know, there are times when you're doing something and you enter into sort of a flow state almost, um, where that sort of separation between subject and object breaks down. So like certain physical, for me, activities will do that. Maybe you get lost in doing some work or something like that. And I'm wondering is that are those aspects of this as well when you enter into those states where it really feels like you're just all awareness or focus on a particular thing or activity. Yes. I would say that that there are, you know, that flow zone can be like a kind of non-dual when it's really in the groove, in the flow can be really um, like there's, yeah, there's no sense of subject and object um, at times, which is why, those kinds of activities, we generally enjoy them, I think, because they're like closer to our true nature. We, we enjoy less when we feel like divided into a subject and object. So, um, yes, yeah, so yes, this is true. But even though it sounds quite different than, um, because we're so immersed in the activity, it's almost like we've heard, we're not thinking about awareness at all. Where um it's there, but there's like the unification is happening. And maybe this would apply also to following the breath really single-mindedly. Um we're not kind of, we're not looking for awareness or anything. So I think that's another that's another way to break down the, the um illusion of duality. It's almost like the opposite of kind of how I've been talking about it. I've been talking more like, let's look back at the awareness itself and kind of like not be so engaged in the activity, right? And um, 
And this other way that maybe both of you, you and Richard talking about is let's get so absorbed in the activity or the object called the breath or the work or the exercise or whatever, that there's no subject left. You see what I mean? They're both um, uh, kind of dissolving the apparent duality and, and ancestor Linji said something like, sometimes I take away the subject, but not the object. Some, you might use slightly different terms. Sometimes I take away the object, but not the subject. And sometimes I take away both and sometimes neither. So that's, you could hear that as these different types of practices. And, uh, because we're looking at Jitagata Garba here, um, I'm kind of proposing a kind of more unusual practice, maybe in the, in the, at least the modern Zen world of, um, almost like instead of focusing on a, on a one simple object, kind of like almost releasing our attention from the object and looking back at the space in which the object is happening. It's, it's a little bit harder than staying with the object because that space is so ungraspable. Yes, I think I'll reserve for the see Karen. Oh, wow. That um, was almost exactly the question that I, I was uh, thinking of that, that, that David asked. Cause when you, when you said that earlier about the breath and how if you're focused on the breath, then you're not necessarily looking at the awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought immediately of stuff with that flow state and people always call it like a Zen flow state, right? I mean, in just regular culture, people conflate that. And, um, and it, it just occurred to me that it did seem like it's completely different. And I think that's just what you said, like that because you're, you're, you're focused on the object or in that thing rather than back on awareness. And so that's, kind of a nice way, like if you're doing this in Zazen to sort of look at what you're doing, you know, which, yeah, which yeah. of those yeah, might I, would I say be doing? They're two different practices. I would say there's yeah. they're two different methods we're talking about here. And it's good to at least know which one we intend to practice and distinguish yeah. them. Uh, and they're both great. Yeah, I, it's actually, re- that's really exciting because I have always thought about, there was this one moment um, on a ski hill when I was taking a ski lesson and it was a very young instructor. Um, and he said, you know, so just when you go down the hill, it's like California Zen, you know, you just, you just get into, and you just go and you just get into it. And I just been like to retreats and doing, and it was so confusing to me because mm-hmm. it was like, I don't think these are the same thing that I've never been able to sort of figure that out or reconcile it. So this is really cool. Um, yeah. So. They're both about non-duality. One's taking away the subject. One's taking away the object. Object. A little bit like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm bringing this up partly because it's, I think it's something new and I've, you know, been talking to many people this practice period and I almost always ask what, what people are doing in Zazen is what they're intending to do. And almost everybody I've talked to has like following the breath as their central practice. And I think that's commonly taught. Um, 
Uh, maybe it's even a hundred percent. People told me that. I can't think oh. of any. Well, I mean, actually, when I do zazen introduction, I will I talk about it as a um, a way to sort of settle yourself. Mm-hmm. But then, mm-hmm. but then I talk about um, more trying to talk about just sitting and yeah, yeah. I that. like to also start settling with um, you know a round or several rounds of following the breath, unless I'm like really scattered and then I need to spend the whole period. But I don't actually. The majority of zazen for me is not following the breath. So um, there's there's options. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to switch gears a little bit, but I was, as soon as you offered the meta- metaphor of the computer screen and the images on it, um, instantly what popped into my mind was luminosity. And I think it's such a fascinating, fascinating concept to me, in, especially in light of a computer screen and how they actually work. So um, I don't know if you would offer a few words about, you know, the, the Buddhist notion of luminosity, especially from a Tibetan perspective and how that plays into our discussion. Yes. Um, in, in these Tathagatagarbha texts, this one doesn't mention it specifically, but some of them use this term, prabhasvarachita. Um, even in the ancient, you know, this ancient Indian tradition, particularly connected with Tathagatagarbha, Prabhasvara means luminous, or um, sometimes people translate it as clear light. Um, but I, I, my understanding, and and mm. my teachers have pointed this out too, is that it doesn't mean literal light. It's not like um, like uh, where you know everything becomes very bright, which do, which actually in parentheses, is a kind of side effect of meditation. I think this often does happen. We go outside and everything looks brighter. But that's not to be confused with this prabhasvara chitta. Um, This luminosity is like just, again, kind of a metaphor as I understand it. Um, And Dzogchen teachers have pointed this out to me. It's just a metaphor for the knowing capacity of mind, for the cognitive capacity, which is like light. It's, it's a great metaphor, just like screen and the wall and the mirror. It's, um, because, because awareness is brightly knowing it. That's, that's what distinguishes it from just empty space. It's not just a void empty space. It's a bright luminous space. So when I use that term, that's how I mean it. It's, it's aware. And light works very nicely for this because it's self-illuminating. In other words, awareness or Tathagatagarbha is illuminating itself. It knows itself. And how do we know this is true? Because when we ask, is awareness present? You can look and check and say, yeah, it is. So that's proof that awareness knows itself. Because we're able to, awareness is you could say, what is it that knows awareness is aware? Well, awareness knows it's aware. So it's self-illuminating. And it's other-illuminating. It illuminates all experiences. And it's, it's out, outwardly, seemingly outwardly. And it illuminates itself inwardly. And if we look more closely, this outside and inside is not really two different directions. But it seems to be. Yeah. Yeah. And so... 
computer screen's a nice analogy for that. Better, better than a movie screen or a mirror, actually, because computer screen is actually like naturally luminous before there's any images on it. You see that strange kind of black light when it's, if you don't have anything on the screen, um, it's still somewhat light, but it's black. So, yes, thanks for that. Um, Ernest. Uh, yes, uh, could you, in the same discussion, if you think of emptiness, uh, the con, I guess I'm, I have to use a concept, but the same thing with the screen is an awareness that the images you're seeing in the screen are not exactly real in the same sense. Uh, that you might have before, that there is a, some, now, some awareness of that, oh no, it's not just the images on the screen, there's also a screen back there. And so is that the same thing as a, an emptiness? Very nice. You're, you're, we're, we're, between us all, we're covering like a lot of Dharma, a lot of Dharma, um, territory with this analogy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We could say the, the conventional truth um, is like the appearances on the screen and they are a kind of truth. And then there's the ultimate truth of the screen, which is like an empty, the emptiness of the screen, um, is inseparable from the conventional truth of appearances and the heart sutra that we chant so regularly. Um, this is a kind of a, a Tathagata Garbha understanding of the heart sutra. It's not, you know, the usual understanding maybe, but it totally works, I think, to say, well, the center of the heart sutra, right, is form itself is emptiness. Emptiness is form. What a crazy radical statement that summarizes Prajnaparamita non-duality. And we can apply it to this. You could say emptiness is the name for the screen here. This, this just undifferentiated, boundless, knowing luminosity and form is all these faces on the screen. So you could say that emptiness itself is form. In other words, yes, we can talk about them differently, but they're inseparable. And the, and the, and the forms of the faces likewise are in their true nature, nothing but the screen. So what, what is the stuff of these faces? What is their, the nature of these faces, it's screen. It's empty screen. So see how, so that, how that's a, a, a new access point maybe to the heart sutra that makes this such a strange statement. I think this is, a, it's a very experiential way of, um, of seeing the statement that form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Um, in our ordinary perception from the point of view of Tathagata Garbha. Thank you. So, um, okay, let's, let's stop, um, let's stop this crazy talk <laughs> and let Shimala Devi, um, guide the way here. Um, we're on chapter nine. Uh, no. Yes, we're in chapter nine. Um, this is, I think this is a real highlight. This is 
we're, we're chanting occasionally in the Zendo these days a, a section from the sutra. And this is the section I chose for chanting because I thought it'd be nice to get really used to it, but we don't chant it enough. Anyway, it's chapter 9, 10, 11, and maybe, maybe just those three chapters we ch- chant. It covers a lot here. So chapter 9 is called um, The Underlying Truth, or we could say The Concealed Truth, The Meaning of Emptiness. Um, and uh, Sri Maladevi continues, uh, Buddha, Bhagavan, the wisdom of the Tathagata Garbha is the Tathagata's wisdom of emptiness. Thank you very much, Ernest, for that segue into this section. Um, shunyata, emptiness. Uh, and then, how is that so? Kind of like we've been saying here. Oh, Bhagavan, the Tathagata Garbha has not been seen nor attained originally by the, all the arhats, Pratika Buddhas, and powerful bodhisattvas. Here it's just making the um, statement that, uh, again, all these kind of earlier versions of Buddhism before this teaching um, didn't quite get this Tathagata Garbha thing. The uh, arhats is, is a realized shravaka, and the Pratika Buddhas, and even the powerful Bodhisattvas, interestingly. But maybe we're talking about emptiness here. We might be, hear that as the Bodhisattvas in the Prajnaparamita sutras that are realizing wisdom beyond wisdom, emptiness. Um, because that emptiness, which sometimes called the second turning of the wheel of Dharma, is not as complete as this emptiness, according to this is the third turning of the wheel of Dharma. The first turning of the wheel was that um, the, uh, you could say that the, the five aggregates are empty of any like personal self, like an owner or a controller of the body and mind. That was the realization of emptiness in the first turning. In the second turning, we hear all dharmas are marked by emptiness. They neither arise nor cease. Emptiness, um, things uh, are empty of themselves. They don't exist in the way they appear. That's the second turning. In this third turning, we're, we're going to hear that emptiness is the, uh, is that the Tathagata Garbha is empty of everything other than itself. It's a little different. They're all emptiness teachings. This is, this is the final version. Uh, so this is this is a real highlight section here. This this next paragraph gets quoted like all over the Indian and Tibetan traditions and um, became very important. It goes like this: Oh Bhagavan, there are two kinds of wisdom of emptiness with reference to Tathagata Garbha in relation to Tathagata Garbha. Here are the two. The Tathagata Garbha that is empty is separate from, free from, and different from the storehouse of all defilements. 
for all obscurations. This is the first one. The Tathagatagarbha, the Buddha nature that is empty, is free from all these obscurations. In other words, the screen that is just empty brightness, empty boundless, ungraspable brightness is separate from, free from, and um, different from all these faces that appear on the screen. In other words, the screen is empty of all these faces. And we're saying that they're, you know, they're not really completely separate either. That's true. But there's a way in which the screen is free from these images, which is why if we end the call, it doesn't end the screen. Or if we change the images on the screen, or we open a new Zoom link, or we do some email, the screen is exactly the same. So it's in that way, it's different from, it's separate from the images in a way. Here it's being pointed out the way that it's separate. And that's one type of emptiness. The um, Tathagatagarbha that is not empty is not separate from, free from, and different from the inconceivable Buddha qualities, which is Buddha dharmas, but I think you could understand it. Buddha qualities or Buddha attributes more numerous than the sands of the Gandhi's river. And what are these Buddha attributes? They're not obscurations. They are like, um, they are like natural love and compassion and skillfulness and virtue. These are like Buddha qualities. They're not like, they're not obscurations covering the Chitagatagarbha. They're, they are the pure Dharmakaya manifesting itself as Buddha activity, pure Buddha activity. Which, so I think here, when we're talking about love, we mean like the, um, the, the sense of unity with all beings in an undifferentiated way. Unconditional love. That's that kind of love. An unconditional compassion. These are Buddha qualities, Buddha attributes. So here, um, this is the kind of wisdom of emptiness in relation to Tathagatagarbha. Interestingly, the Tathagatagarbha is not empty of these Buddha qualities. So, again, Tathagatagarbha is empty of the storehouse of obscurations based on false views and dualistic thoughts and perceptions. It is empty of that stuff. That stuff doesn't stick to it. But it's not empty of these Buddha qualities. And in fact, it can't be separated from these Buddha qualities of love and compassion. That statement is made... Only here in the Srimala Devi for the first time by Srimala Devi in this sutra. And, um, it's a wonderful statement. I, I might even single out that those two sentences as, as one, one core of the sutra. Um, it just became very prominent teaching in, um, Tibet. Uh, well, it's quoted in Indian treatises on Buddha nature commented on his a main teaching there 
Um, particularly is Ratnagotra Vibhaga is an Indian, the main Indian Shastra or treatise on Buddha nature. And, um, this verse is quoted from Srimala Deva Sutra, these two sentences. And then the next verse, nicely in the, in this treatise, ancient Indian treatise, um, from maybe like the fourth century. The next verse is, um, therefore there's nothing to be removed. Nothing needs to be removed and nothing needs to be added. There's nothing that can be removed or added from Tathagata Garbha or Dharmakaya. Yes, we can, um, we can let go of the obscurations or see through the obscurations, but truly, Nothing needs to be like ripped away from this Tathagata Garbha and nothing needs to be added to it. Nothing needs to be removed because um, it's perfectly pure and nothing needs to be added because the Buddha qualities are already there. Why it follows on that verse. Uh, Gregory. There we are. Yeah, you mentioned Tibet. I think it's um, um, historically important to realize that in Tibet, Shavrep Dolpa, Shavrep Gelson called Dolpa, the Buddha from Dolpa, um, was the great advocate for this um, non-emptiness of the Tathagatagarbha and the Buddha dharmas. And, but uh, Tsongkhapa um couldn't couldn't stand that uh idea he said uh everything is empty from the madhyamaka uh perspective and they had a uh, year 100 years of debate <clears throat> Tsongkhapa won the debate and uh 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 lineage the jonangpa was then um um what do you call it um uh, Kind of exiled and yeah, you know, yeah, right. Yeah, they were, yeah. they were, their their temples were confiscated by the uh, uh, Tsongkhapa. Was it the Gelugpa? Their temples were confiscated and their teachings were uh, forced underground. And it's yeah. only been it's only been in the last um, uh, I'd say seventy five to one hundred years that they've come back to the foreground with a new movement uh, that is uh, re-presenting them to the Tibetan Buddhist world and advocating again for, for what this Sherep was, was, was saying. And he had, and, and, and um, his great book, the mountain doctrine. Um, yeah. It's a hefty one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Um, but it's but it's all about Tathagata Garba. He's and yeah. yeah, this is a it's a huge topic that you that you bring up here that um, that that debate in Tibetan Buddhism that still goes on. And uh, Dolpopa is another name for Shayrabir. He um, is uh, based on these two sentences in the Srimala Deva Sutra. He is the one who coined this Tibetan term Shentong. Yeah. And I know some of you have heard this. There's, um, in Tibetan, there's two kinds of emptiness, uh, Rong Tong and Shentong. Tong means emptiness. 
Ran means self, and Shen means other. So in, in English, there's self-emptiness and other emptiness. And that's based on this very section of Srimala Devi Sutra. And um, the way that they would define these terms now is uh, Rang Tong means actually everyone agrees, the Galupas agree and, and um, Dolpopa agrees that uh, this is true. Rang Tong means that, um, that everything is empty of itself. That's what we mean by self-emptiness. All phenomena like eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, and so on, are empty of themselves. When we say there's no eye, no ears, no nose, the Heart Sutra says it very nicely. What are they empty of? I think it's most wonderful to say they're empty of themselves. In other words, there is no actual nose. It's empty of being a nose. Sometimes we say it's empty of inherent existence, but that's up for a whole other discussion. I think it's more more radical and liberating to say, really, this is quite a statement. The eye is empty of being an eye. The ear is empty of being an ear. So that's self-empty. And that's all of the Madhyamaka middle way tradition agrees with that. But then Dalpopa's um, Shentong, other empty, is um, in addition to all phenomena, being empty of themselves, there's this Tathagata Garba, Buddha nature that is empty of anything other than itself. That's how we could understand Shenkan, empty of other. It's not contradicting Rangtan, it's but it's making an additional point that not everybody agrees with. That Buddha nature is empty of everything other than itself. The screen is empty of everything other than the screen. It's empty of all these images. But it's kind of implying that this Buddha nature is not empty of itself. Like eyes, ears, nose, and tongue, body are empty of themselves. It's kind of saying it has a kind of reality to it. Um, and of course, people like Dopopla and, and his amazing teacher and this he he lived in um 13th century just after the time of Dogen and you know wrote this huge volume that we have in English now um the mountain doctrine it's Gregory said uh about this point uh he's saying he people like Sankapa accuse him of saying well if you're saying that this Buddha nature has some reality to it that's too much for us. We're just into everything is empty. That's the second turning of the wheel. The third turning to say that, well, maybe there's some reality that's not empty of itself. It's just empty of everything other than itself. That was why they like start confiscating temples. And, you know, this is, these doctrinal points can be like, have big impacts. So it's a dangerous point. Del Popo is putting himself, uh, Risking his neck, maybe by bringing this up, but hey, Sri Mala Devi said it before, and the Buddha approved it, and many other sutras say it too. So thanks for bringing that up, Gregory. That's a huge topic this debate. But for just a brief, a brief overview, I think the Wikipedia entry on Dolpopa or 
um, Sherab Gautzen's gives a nice summary. And this from Shentan, like Gregory said, on the, the, uh, the Jonanpa school that the Pope founded died out for these reasons and is somewhat, it's definitely revived kind of academically. But this teaching of Shentan kept being celebrated in the Kagyu and the Nyingma schools of Tibetan Buddhism. It's, and it's kind of forms the basis for, um, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, they don't always use the term Shentong, but a lot of teachers in modern times do use it in this way, referring to Buddha nature. So, um, we have some juicy sections. And while we're on um, this, these verses, um, the Zen tradition in China, as I mentioned, not many use the term Tathagatagarbha. But um, a disciple of the sixth ancestor uh, named Yong Jia, also called the overnight guest because he just spent one night hanging out with the sixth ancestor and got the whole teaching. He wrote this famous poem that's still chanted in in uh, temples in Japan, Soto and Rinzai temples. I know Soto temples chant this Shodoka. It's called Song of Verifying the Way by Yongjia, disciple of the sixth ancestor. And, um, and it mentions the term Tathagatagarbha, one of the few references. And, uh, it goes like this. People do not recognize the wish fulfilling jewel intimately Abiding in Tathagatagarbha, the wish-fulfilling jewel intimately obtained from this storehouse, this Tathagatagarbha. Um, its miraculous workings are neither empty nor non-empty. This might be a reference to Shumaladeva Sutra. One complete light or luminosity, form without form. So it goes on from there. It's a long, several-page poem. But uh, people don't recognize this wish-fulfilling jewel that's intimately obtained from the Tathagatagarbha, Tathagata heart. Its miraculous workings, its miraculous functions are neither empty nor non-empty. It's one complete radiance, light, form without form. And, um, and in case number 93 in the Book of Serenity, a, a koan collection, there's a koan referencing this line, these lines. It's one of the few Tathagatagarbha koans that particularly use the term. Um, Lutsu asked Nanchuan, quoting this, this um, Yongjia's poem here, people don't recognize the wish-fulfilling jewel that's intimately obtained from 
Tathagatagarbha intimately found within the Tathagatagarbha. He quotes that line and then he says, what is the garbha? What is, which we, we defined before as a womb, an embryo, but I think I like the term heart, the essence or heart of something. What is this heart of the Tathagata, the garbha? Nanchuan says, it is me arising and ceasing with you. This is how the Zen people play with these things, right? Or it is, it is that in me which comes and goes with you. And then Lutsu, this sounds kind of different than where we've been talking about the Garba as a screen, right? That's like not changing, not coming and going, right? Isn't it interesting that he says, it's that in, that in me which comes and goes with you. Like these faces on the screen coming and going interdependently. But what about that which doesn't come and go? I thought that was the garba. That's exactly what um, Lutsu said to Nanchuan. What about that which doesn't come and go? And Nanchuan said, that's also the garba. And, uh, then Lutsu said, what's the jewel hidden in the Tathagata Garba? Nanchuan said, Lutsu. Lutsu said, yes. And Nanchuan said, uh, you can go now. You don't meet with my words. That's it. Tathagata Garba, koan. And, uh, if you're interested in, in more, um, there's a there's I think a two day re- commentary um, um, that I've offered on my website referring to Simala Devi Sutra on this story. But, um, back, to the, back to the sutra, the Tathagata Garbha that's empty is separate from, separable from the uh, storehouse of defilements and it's not the one that's not empty is not separate from not separable from the inconceivable Buddha qualities of which there are many more than the sands in the Gandhi's river and uh, and then Shimala Devi says Bhagavan the various great disciples can here it says believe in the Tathagata. Maybe we could translate it here as like all these disciples that you talked about that don't actually see and uh, attain the Tathagata Garbha, the Shravakas, Bhajita Buddhas, and so on. Here she says the very these various great disciples can have faith in the Tathagata regarding these types of emptiness. In other words, they maybe don't experience it directly, but they, because of this teaching, they can trust this, or they can have some faith in this teaching, in these two types of emptiness, but they don't see it directly, I think is what's being said here. 
all the arhats and Parteka Buddhas revolve in the realm of the four contrary views because of their knowledge of emptiness. Thus, arhats and Parteka Buddhas do not originally see nor attain the wisdom of Tathagatagarbha. So she says that. The, uh, the cessation of all suffering is only fully realized by the Buddhas who destroy the storehouse of defilements and practice the path that all suffering. Destroy the storehouse of defilements is, is not done with a sledgehammer. It is done by like looking very carefully at them, at like these images on the screen and seeing that actually it's just screen. And thus they are destroyed. And this thing about the realm of the contrary views, this is this um, Vipar Yasa. And um, Gregory's got some nice footnotes on, extensive footnotes on this term of the, of the inverted views. I think it's better than contrary inverted views and um, um, I think here it's saying that these arhats and prateka buddhas um, don't have the have these true um, inverted views of which we'll, uh, we'll see later in the sutra about um, transcendent permanence and self and and bliss and so on. Um, but in fact, I think that the Arhats and Prateka Buddhas, according to the early sutras, do realize that um, all conditioned phenomena are not satisfactory and are not self and are, um, are not permanent and are not pure of duality. So I think they do realize that version of these inverted, you know, they see through those inverted views, but they don't yet see this positive aspect of the inverted views. Um, May I make a comment? Sure. In 1969, the first time I ever saw the Heart Sutra was in a um, underground printed the San Francisco Zen Center version, uh, their first version, and it had the it it translated the term as topsy turvy views. Oh. And I thought that was that was pretty delicious. And uh, somewhere <laughs> along the way they stopped translating it that way, but I really liked uh, uh liked that. Yeah, that's right. It's in the Heart Sutra as far beyond all inverted views, we sometimes say. That's the term, yeah. Topsy-turvy. Um, so um, it's making this point about this unique Mahayana thing of this, of this Tathagatagarbha teaching that the early teachings don't seem to get this. And it's true. If you ask even Theravada practitioners, what about realizing Buddha nature, Tathagatagarbha, unless they're influenced by the Mahayana, like, I don't know what you're talking about. We're just actually... Um, trying to 
it, we're, we're really looking at conditioned phenomena and how they're not permanent and not self. This is a liberating teaching. But we're not really exploring the dimensions of the unconditioned so much because that's too much. We'll leave that to you guys, you Zen folks. So uh, the next chapter, chapter 10, is called The One Noble Truth. And um, if kind of um, carrying on a section that was earlier, you might remember from previous classes about the Noble Truths, the Four Noble Truths. It's associated. Bhagavan, among the Four Noble Truths, there are three that are impermanent and one that's permanent, unchanging. You have this issue of something that's unchanging again. So it's like this. One of these noble truths is not like the other. One of these noble truths doesn't belong. <laughs> because the three of the four noble truths are conditioned, or as we were talking about previously, you could say compounded, Sanskrita, constructed, by the way, the, the term Sanskrit, the language Sanskrit, mean is the same term, Sanskrit, and it means constructed. So the, this language is called constructed, and it also, because it's a language, it constructs a reality too. So um, three of these terms are Sanskrit, and one is not. And... Um, what what is conditioned or compounded or constructed is impermanent, and what is impermanent is false and deceptive in nature. So I think that's what we, got, we were talking earlier about. It seems like the images aren't quite as real as the screen. The images are impermanent, moving around and changing. So here it's going so far as to say they're false. These images are not really real. They're not, at least they're not ultimately real. They're conventionally appearing. We can, there's a conventional truth to the impermanent appearances, but it's just conventionally true. Real. Yeah. What is impermanent is false and deceptive in nature. What is false and deceptive in nature is not true, is impermanent, and therefore, it's not a refuge. We want to take refuge if it's, if we're looking for a supreme, reliable refuge. We better not like take refuge in something impermanent because it wouldn't be a reliable refuge. This is the way the Mahayana looks at the three refuges. We're looking for a reliable, indestructible, unchanging, refuge that we that we can rely on through birth and death. If it's something in the realm of birth and death, it's not truly reliable. Early Buddhism maybe is emphasizing the Buddha as a person is a refuge and the Sangha as people are a refuge. But the Mahayana kind of like says, yes, but really the ultimate refuge must be something that's not changing. And we could say the Sangha refuge, luckily all sentient beings have our Buddha nature. So the Buddha nature of the Sangha is a reliable refuge. Uh, and the Buddha nature of the Buddha is a reliable refuge. And the Buddha nature that is the Supreme Dharma is a reliable refuge. 
Uh, Therefore, the three noble truths, namely suffering, the source of suffering, and the path leading to the cessation of suffering, are not the supreme truth, for they are neither permanent nor a refuge. The next chapter, short one here, chapter 11, the one refuge. The one noble truth, namely the cessation of suffering, is separate from the Sanskrit, the conditioned compounded. We have that word separate again. So see how all these are correlating, right? One um, noble truth here is um, separate from all the conditioned, like storehouse of defilements. So it's kind of a reference to something that the screen of the Tagadagarbha is also called the cessation of suffering. What is separate from the compounded is permanent or unchanging. What is permanent is not false and deceptive in nature. What is not false and deceptive in nature is true, permanent, and a refuge. Therefore, the noble truth of the cessation, it says it in parentheses of suffering, but really when they list it, it's the noble truth of cessation, niroda, is the supreme truth. And um, niroda or cessation is often in the early teachings associated with nirvana. That is the, the realization of the cessation of suffering. Nirvana is the end of suffering. And nirvana, even in the early teachings, like the Nibbana Sutta in the um, Udana collection in the Pali Canon, the Buddha says there is an unborn, an un become an unarisen and unmade and unfabricated awesome scripture if there were not an unborn un become unmade unfabricated there would not be liberation from the born the arisen and the fabricated that liberation would not be possible but be precisely because there is an unborn and unarisen and unmade and unfabricated, then liberation or emancipation from the born, the arisen, the made, and the fabricated can be realized. The Buddha, the Buddha famously taught. And this unborn nirvana, he doesn't talk that much about it in the early teachings. And it's in all of these negative words. It's not born. It's not arisen. It's not changing. Here in this sutra, is getting associated with this Tathagata Garbha is also, and the Dharmakaya we heard is unborn, unarisen, and unfabricated. And the Tathagata Garbha is this unborn mixed with the appearance of born stuff. I think this is brilliant the way the Sutra is kind of tying together a lot of like early teachings and in a new way, and it's talking about our own ordinary awareness right now, not some mystical um, state that is only going to be found a million lifetimes from now. It's already present in all of us, as all of us right now. It's just that we're really into the images on the screen. 
So that's what we're attending to all day and even in our dreams. So, uh, yeah, later maybe I'll just leave you with this quote from Prince Toku from um, kind of agreeing with some of these points. He says, the unconditioned truth of cessation, that's the third noble truth, is to Tagadagarbha. So Sutra doesn't say it that directly. You can piece the pieces together, but he says it directly. The third noble truth is cessation of suffering, but you could say cessation of any arisen phenomena, any conditioned things. Here is called the Tagadagarbha. Buddha nature. Whew. So, um, I guess we better stop. Luckily, we have one more week to finish it off. And, uh, I hope this is, this part of the sutra is now wordy and, and, um, long though it is, it, um, you can find the experiential meaning um, hidden behind the words, the unchanging meaning behind the changing words. Any final questions or comments? Yes, Karen. This this is probably just a diversion, but I, I find myself just wondering, like, um, you know, in, in the early teachings, it's like teaching the Four Noble Truths, it's like the Buddha buried the lead, you know? Buried the what? <laughs> buried the lead, you know, in journalism, you're not supposed to bury the lead, like you put the most important thing at the front. Uh, so it's like, it's like, really? So yeah. the... It's, I almost never think about the third noble truth. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And when you also when you go to the um, the four foundations of mindfulness sutra, it's very you know, popular in the Theravada world. And it goes through, you know, mindfulness of body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of mental factors, and mindfulness of dharma. And on that list of dharma, at the very end of the sutra, really, is the four noble truths. And in those four noble truths, of course, there is the third noble truth. And there can be mindfulness of the third noble truth. And sometimes when people have asked me or I've thought about like, well, how is this, um, this important mindfulness sutra connect to, um, to like these non-dual teachings of Zen and Dzogchen and so on. And, um, I thought, well, all these, this list of, there must be a hundred or more um, experiences to be mindful of in the sutra. I thought, well, all of them are kind of objects of mindfulness. And yes, we can become more and more unified with the object, but they're all mindfulness is directed towards objects, except in this list of a hundred or so objects of attention. One of them is called cessation. And I thought, that is the key in this early sutra. That's the link. It's hidden. In, yeah, it's the punchline it's the Mahayana punchline hidden in that sutra and then um I I've looked in um like Joseph Goldstein a um Theravada teacher he has a nice 
and he's really into Mahayana also. He practices Dzogchen and so on. I thought, um, I found his kind of recent commentary on the, um, on the Satipatthana Sutta. And I was curious. I wonder if he picked up on this point. So I flipped all the way to the end to the third noble truth. And he makes exactly the same point. He's like, this is where it connects to these non-dual Mahayana teachings. He probably doesn't even know the Srimala Devi Sutra making such a, such a fuss about the third noble truth. But I think it's, it's a, it's kind of an obvious point to look in there. Everything else is conditioned. But there's one realm that you can be mindful of. It's not conditioned. But it's harder than all the rest. Seemingly. Bhushan, did you have a point? So you were unmuted. Did you have some comment, Bhushan? Then, any, any last, one last comment from me. Um, that last line, uh, cessation or extinction is the supreme truth, she says. Uh, that's the term Paramartha. Uh-huh. And, uh, earlier we had the supreme truth is the Tathagata Garbha relationship. Uh-huh. So that's, uh-huh. that's the link that uh, I good, think yeah. Prince Shitoku got the, uh, uh, the common denominator. Uh, Tathagata Garbha is, uh, is yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, yeah, nice. So yeah, um, Paramartha is usually, we often translate as ultimate truth. So here's supreme truth, but the ultimate truth, which is, I think in all schools of Buddhism, ultimate truth would be something that doesn't change, but in various ways of talking about it. Any positive energy, any, um, flashing light bulbs, any, uh, and the openness we've gathered in a, tonight, we um, offer it throughout the universe to all beings, um, including ourselves, obscured by illusory images. May we all be free. Uh, beings are numberless. I vow to save them. The illusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Remove all these images from the screen. <laughs>